I am grateful to God, whom I worship with a clear conscience, as my ancestors did, when I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. Recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that lived first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure lives in you. For this reason, I remind you to rekindle the gift of God that is within you through the laying on of my hands. For God did not give us a spirit of cowardice, but rather a spirit of power and of love and of self-discipline. Do not be ashamed, then, of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel, relying on the power of God, who saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace. This grace was given to us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. This is the word of the Lord. In Bible courses here at the church, we would show you all the reasons why our best scholars believe this letter was not written by Paul and not written to Timothy. Instead, our scholars believe that it was a letter written a good generation or more after the death of Paul by someone who loved Paul very much, who was very familiar with him and Timothy, and is writing to a latter-day church that is in the first century, the very end of that first century of the Common Era, with the idea, if Paul and Timothy were still alive, how would Paul and Timothy address the situation in which we live? We know a little bit about Timothy from Paul's writings, and we know a little bit about Timothy from Luke's writing in the book of Acts. Chapter 16 of Luke's book of Acts, he tells us that Timothy had a Jewish mother, but he had a Greek father. I don't know if the Jewish mother didn't go to synagogue as often as she might, or the Greek father objected, but we discover in Paul's writings that Timothy had never been circumcised. He should have been on the eighth day, but he was not. And only when he was a young adult and Paul confronted him with this did Timothy decide to submit to circumcision and celebrate his relationship with the Jewish community of faith. There are four important things I've underlined here for you to think about as you wait your time to come to the table. Number one, this author says, Timothy, we know you had a great-grandmother, and you had a great mother, and now you have faith as well. Did you have a grandmother who had a strong faith? I had one grandmother who never went to church. She and her husband, my grandfather, were good people, honest people, hard-working people, but they didn't go to church. My grandmother Biggs went to church. My grandfather Biggs died when I was just an infant. I don't really remember him, but I remember my grandmother really well. She went to church Sunday morning. She went to church Sunday night. She went to church Wednesday night. When I was a boy growing up, particularly at the night services, Sunday night, Wednesday night, we loved to play in the yard around the church. We'd play chase and tag around the trees until finally one of the dads would give a whistle and say, okay, it's time for the boys and men to join the women and girls in the sanctuary. It's time to get the service underway. And I would go right down to the front. My grandmother Big sat right down front. In the latter years of her life, she didn't hear very well, and she could hear much better down front. So she sat there, but she always had a place for me right beside her. 
And I would slide into the pew beside her. I could feel the perspiration running down my back from chasing these guys for the last 20 minutes outside. And she'd put her arm around me and the service would begin. In the little church where I grew up, it was not unusual for the pastor to call on lay people to pray in the service. We'd sing a hymn, then a prayer. Hymn and then a prayer. And my grandmother was often one of those called on, never with any advance notice, just Cousin Lizzie, they called her. Cousin Lizzie, would you like to pray? Yes, she would. She always stood up. I only saw her pray two ways, either standing or kneeling. She said, you ought not ever sit when you're talking to the Lord. You either stand in the presence of the Lord or you get down on your knees, one or the other. There were no kneelers on the pews in that little church, so she stood when she prayed. And she prayed wonderfully well. When I was a boy in the summertime helping her at the farm, she was one of those that came from the old Puritan work ethic. She thought you were supposed to work from the rising of the sun to well into the evening. She'd fix us a good breakfast. We'd work all morning long. We'd have a light lunch, rest just a few minutes, and then right back into her fields and would work till late in the afternoon. She'd cook us a bigger dinner at night, but by the time she had washed the dishes and I had dried them all, then she would let the quilt she was working on down from the ceiling had cords wrapped around each of the four corners. She could lower it down. And she would sit there and stitch with her hands and talk to me until finally my head would fall down on the quilt and she'd say, I'd better get you to bed. And she'd take me into the bedroom where I was going to sleep and we'd always kneel and pray. She was wonderful. You would have liked her very much. My mother grew up in the family that didn't go to church. And so when she married my father, she didn't go to church. Two years later, I was born, and two years later, my little sister was born. My dad was drafted into World War II late. It was right near the end of the war. His unit got to France just immediately after the Normandy invasion. In fact, they had had so short a time in combat that when the war was over in Germany, his unit was picked up and sent straight to the South Pacific to join MacArthur's army and get ready to invade Japan. My mother, with two little ones, being forced out of the gas company house where we lived. We had to go live with her parents out in the country. They were very poor sharecroppers. And my mother, I've heard her tell this story, said, I knew I needed help. And so she started walking us down the little country road to the closest church. It was a Nazarene church. I was too little to remember this, three years old. But she told me that the very first Sunday night, after we had been to this little Nazarene church, she was tucking me in when I said, aren't we going to pray? And she said, aren't we going to what? And I said, aren't we going to pray? They said at Sunday school we're supposed to pray. And she said, I didn't know how. I didn't know how. Nobody had ever taught me how to pray. But I remember saying in my deepest heart, Oh God, if you'll help me say something fairly intelligent in front of this three-year-old I love better than my own life, I will learn how to pray. And she did. She became an every Sunday morning, every Sunday night, every Wednesday night Christian herself. And so I was always there three times a week because my mother became a real woman of faith. A real woman of faith. So I can identify with this. I had a great grandmother of faith, and I had a wonderful mother of faith, and I came to faith for myself. A real faith for myself. I hope you have that. Number two, 
this author says to all of us, rekindle the fire of your first faith. Rekindle the fire. Now, this is a word in Greek that Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts and those of you who love to camp out, if you make a fire these days at your camp outside, this is what this word is about. It's about banking the fire before you go to sleep at night. And when you wake up the next morning, all you have are very hot embers and coals. But if you fan it, if you fan the coals and you blow on it, you can rekindle the flame. That's what this word is. Blow on the embers, blow on the ashes, fan them so that they're rekindled. You heard all the conversation this past year in Tulsa about dog parks. Uh, parks in our city where dog lovers can take their animals and take the leashes off and let them run. Uh, we were approached by the mayor's office about the park immediately across Cincinnati from the church, turning that into one of these dog parks. And would we at Boston Avenue let people park on our parking lot while they let their dogs run in the park? And we said, the one across Cincinnati. Sure, you could park over there. Let your dogs run in the park. Well, Edward Grinnan wrote recently about such a dog park in New York where he lives. And he said one day he had taken his dog to one of these parks and he took the leash off and his dog was running like crazy all around the park and he was just sitting there on the park bench enjoying. When suddenly an older woman came down the sidewalk from his left and a younger woman down the sidewalk from his right, he could tell they had come to meet each other. They both sat down on the bench right next to him. The older one said to the younger, How long has it been? She said, Fifteen days. The older woman said, Good for you. Good for you. And the younger one said, I almost didn't make it last night. Really? She said, I almost did not make it last night. I really wanted to. The older woman said, But you didn't. No, she said, I didn't. Well, how did you not? And she said, I prayed, and I prayed, and I prayed, and finally the urge sort of went away, and I went to sleep. And this morning I got up, and I started praying, and then I went to a meeting at 8 o'clock. And the older woman said, you're doing great. You're doing great. And she gave her a little hug, and she walked away. And the younger woman reached in her purse and took out a big fat book. And Edward Grinnan said, I recognized it. It's called the Big Book in Alcoholics Anonymous. This young woman was learning how to blow on the embers every morning. Oh, God, let's just deal with today. Help me get through today, okay? I really don't want to drink, but I sort of want to. But I don't want to. I don't want to. Help me. Help me not. Help me not. I want to be well. I want to be well. That's what this word means. Okay? Number three. This author says, rely on the power of God. Rely on the power. And here's this word that I tell my Sunday school class about all the time. It's dunamis in Greek, from which we get words like dynamite and dynamic and dynamo and so on. Noun form we usually translate as power. In the verb form we translate it as to be able. Are you able? Do you have the power? Arlene B. has written about living in Florida 
Four years ago, you may recall, there were an unusually large number of hurricanes. You know that we start with A, B, C, D, naming these great storms. And that year, the storm that hit her town in Florida was Hurricane Wilma. She said that her home was not damaged so very much, but her church was. And she said, I'd heard that our church was really badly damaged. And surely enough, the next Sunday morning when I got there, the sanctuary had a lot of damage, a lot of water wind damage, and all the Sunday school wing. Uh, water damage, windows blown out, water and so on. We could all meet in the fellowship hall. It had held up better. And so she said we started with Sunday school and one class had to be in one corner, one in another, one in another, and another. And then we we're all going to gather for worship. Well, she said as our Sunday school class began, all of us were sort of sitting there really feeling devastated by what had happened. Sunday school teacher, she said, reached into her purse, and when she pulled out her hand, she had a little green frog sticking up on this finger. She said, I want you to look at my little green frog. And Arlene says he was really cute. He had little buggy eyes, and he had little little rubbery arms, you know, legs that hung, hung down. And she said, I want you to remember the four letters that spell this little reptile's name. F-R-O-G Fully rely on God Fully rely on God Arlene says it just sort of picked us all up And when worship was over that day I went over to my teacher and I said Where do you get one of those little green frogs? And she told me where she bought it And so she said I went and bought one I wanted one for myself and I bought one for my son. My son's a dentist. And he really was struggling with the decision to move his dental practice into a different neighborhood where he'd have a lot more patients but people who had less money to spend on dental care. He was struggling. I gave him one of my little green frogs. And I said, didn't tell him what to do, just said, I love you. And I want you to fully rely on God to direct you. She said, I went back to the store and I bought some more of those little green frogs. Sealing up in my car with gas. Woman pulled up in another car. Don't think I've ever seen a sadder face in my life, she said. Don't know what her trouble was. She started putting gas in her car. And I just said to her, young lady, I don't know what your trouble is this morning, but could I give you a gift? I have a little green frog I'd like you to have with the little googly eyes here. I think of him as fully relying on God. She said, thank you very much. And she took him. A few days later, she said, I bought some more of those little frogs and I went to the veterans hospital in my community. We have a lot of young men and women who've sustained severe injuries in Iraq and Afghanistan. I went bed by bed, told them, I'm an old woman, I could be your grandmother. I want to bring you a present today. I have a little green frog here. F-R-O-G. During all these weeks, maybe months of rehabilitation, I believe if you fully rely on God to help you, God will help you. She said, I haven't had a single one turn me down. They all take my little green frogs. They thank you very much.
She said, in the last four years, I've given away 4,000 of them. That's three a day. Three a day she's giving away these little green frogs. But she said, you know what? I don't, I don't impose anything. I simply see people who look like they need a little help. And I say, I think we all function better if we fully rely on God. Number four. This author says, it's about grace. It's all about grace. The grace of God. The unmerited favor of God. The belief that just because of who God is, God wants good to come to every child of His. God wants good for you. If you feel alienated, if you feel separated by anything whatsoever, come, he says, come. Tell me about it in your deepest heart. And let me tell you, I forgive you. I want to set you right with me one more time. Let me set you right with me one more time, God is saying. And we've come to know this grace of God most clearly in Jesus Christ, in whom God has abolished death and bid us come to life. Has abolished death and bids us come to life. Did you read the interview with Carl Reiner this week? Carl Reiner is nearly 90 years old now. Uh, writer on the old Sid Caesar shows many years ago. He was the creator of the Dick Van Dyke Show. It was about Carl Reiner's family, the Dick Van Dyke Show, and he wrote about his family and became a great hit. Well, Carl Reiner's still writing books and still writing jokes. He's got two new books out right now, so he was being interviewed about that. How are you doing, Carl? And he said, every morning I wake up and I read the obituaries. If I don't find my name, I have breakfast, he said. I read the obituaries myself. And the other day I read one. Perhaps you saw it. The person who had died was named Maurizio Montalbale. Maurizio Montalbale from Italy. He was only 56. He had a severe stroke and died. But one day, American astronauts may be indebted to Maurizio. Back in the 1980s, when we decided one day we might be sending astronauts to Mars or some other distant place, we needed to know how long can a person be all by himself, all by herself, and still function? Maurizio was a sociology professor in Italy. He saw the ads. He decided he could use the extra money. He said, I can do that. So he went down into a cave in Italy. It had been properly stocked. Lots of water. Lots of food that astronauts might eat in a spacecraft. And we've learned a lot in the last 25 years. The food wasn't so good, tang and that sort of stuff. But that's what they put down in the cave with him. They did run electrical wiring, so there was electric power. And he could take books with him, and there was a bed. That's it. No conversation with anybody. He could come out anytime he wanted to. He made it 210 days. Seven months. All by himself. No sound. Books. A bed. Something to eat. Something to drink. 
no watches, no clock. 210 days. When he decided to come out, he was asked, how long do you think you've been down there? He said, 79 days. Every time he went, he thought he had been there far less time than he had been. 79 days, he thought. By monitoring him up above ground, researchers said that they could tell he was awake sometimes 48 hours. And then he'd sleep only five or six, and he'd get up and start reading, moving around a little bit. 210 days, he made it. Well, he stayed out for two years. He volunteered to go again, have another try. Made it 235 days. Stayed out two years, decided to give it another try. Went down and stayed 366 days, one more than a year. After the third time, he said, that's it for me. Never again. And the researchers asked him, what did you think about most? What were you missing most? He didn't say pizza. He didn't say pasta. He said, the sun. I miss the sun more than anything else. I dreamed again and again about a rising sun. One of the psalmists said, Our souls wait for the Lord. Yea, we long for the Lord more than those who watch for the morning. 